Well, surprisingly, I think for a lot of us, we have to recognize that Jesus himself is remarkably divisive as a person, as a uh, bringer in of theology, as a teacher, as uh, our Redeemer. He is a divisive person. You're either with him or you're against him. You're either worshiping him or what he says is you are worshiping something else. You're either walking in his will, you're either walking in his desire, or you are, what he would say, you are grieving his own spirit. He's divisive. He says that. He points that out again and again. And in our passage today, Jesus makes some massive divisions to his audience about himself. His mere actions, we we see here in in the passage, they divide people. To the point where some thinks he is actually satanic. His words are remarkably divisive on their own. He says that people are known by their fruit, which is fine to hear at first thought. If you say, oh, you're known by your fruit, you're like, that makes a lot of sense. But then he says, actually, no one bears good fruit on their own. You're known by your fruit, but you are incapable of producing fruit, just rot. And now fire some people up. His illustrations about himself. Uh, They're intended to show his purpose, but they divide people by saying those who should know better, they actually know less. And in doing so, he calls them evil and cheaters. His relationships, his relationships also sow division or describe division in the society around him because he says that those who are known by the world as his own family, they are actually not his true family. He says that people who are not not related to him by blood, are actually more firmly rooted and in unity with him. And that's our passage today. We need to face the music a little bit that the Jesus we think we know isn't always the Jesus that is clearly presented to us in Scripture. He is gentle. He is lowly. We've seen him as meek and mild, but he is also strong. He is also very passionate. He is brilliant. He is at war against evil, and he is defensive of his Father's own glory. And in our world today, our world loves a good uh, de-escalation of power. But Jesus is power always and never backs down when it comes to his Father's glory and his own purpose. So I think it's helpful for us to consider that Jesus is someone, or let me put it this way, I think it's helpful for you to, to see Jesus as someone you either align with in everything or you actually line up against as an enemy. If you look at verse 22 of our text, this is actually serving as the context of the passage as a whole. That's the setting of today's longer passage. Matthew tells of a man brought to Jesus who was plagued by a demon. He was demon-possessed. But not only was he demon-possessed, he was blind and he was mute. But there Jesus healed him instantly by casting out this demons or casting out the demon. And some of the people in the crowd, in in verse 23, they were amazed at what he had done, even saying, this must be the son of David. But then there were also some in the crowd, and here's the tension of the text, setting the, the context of the narrative here. The Pharisees, they saw all this happen, and hopefully you're, you're, the, you're the good people in this passage who would go, man, that must be the son of God. But there is a whole flock of people who look at Jesus and they say, that man must be demon-possessed. They think his power is from Satan, from Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And this leads now to a, a lengthy response from Jesus. We see this in, starting in verse 24 and 25 and going into the end of the chapter. My, my sermon, hopefully, will be explaining his response in this. So if you think of the context and, and how the shape 
uh, of the passages set up. Even last night, I was like, why in the world did I choose 30 verses to preach from in, you know, 35 or 40 minutes or something? This is just too much. But I think you got to see this as a unit. This is one of the glorious, beautiful things about preaching through books of the Bible or passages is there, there, there is a shape and there is a weight to how this text unfolds. And what is done is an attack on Jesus as a person, and then he gives this really long response bit by bit, and that'll serve as its five points if you're using an outline. My opinion is that there are five major movements of this text where we actually see how divisive Jesus really is. And the, context, the larger context here is how we just came out of passages that talk about him being meek and gentle, welcoming, but here he's drawing line after line in the sand. So first, I want to show you just how divisive Jesus is. He is divisive in that he binds Satan and rescues his own people. We see this in verses 22 through 30. He binds Satan and rescues his own people. All right, so I told you the context. The Pharisees think Jesus' power is demonic, but ironically, Jesus responds back with uh, that he is the the one who is bringing in the kingdom of God. This is where it's ironic. He's the one bringing in the kingdom of God to actually overcome and topple the kingdom of Satan. So they're saying, this must be demonic work. And he's saying, no, that is exactly who I'm going after, is demonic work. In verse 25, he begins with basic logic. He says, a house divided cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln used this same argument when he spoke about slavery. He said, for the union, in order to stand, it has to pick Aside. We can't continue to do this and all stay together, so we have to pick one side or the other. And this is how Jesus sets up his argument. He's saying that I'm either satanic or divine, and you have to pick one. In verse 26, Jesus says that it doesn't make any sense that he would cast out demons by the prince of demons. Why would Satan attack his own? Why would Jesus be going against Satan? if what these people are saying, oh, he's actually doing Satan's work. They would have been cheering on Satan's work, but here he's actually doing what only Christ could do. Why would Satan attack his own? Infighting always fails. Think of your own life. Anytime there is infighting in an office or a home or within friendships, it never builds up anything, right? It just tears away. And Jesus demonstrating that he is going after evil, it would not make sense if he was doing that on behalf of evil. Now, verse 27, he appeals to a precedent. So firstly, uh, he appeals to logic, and then he also appeals to the sides, but then he appeals to the precedent. In verse 27, he says that others casted out demons. Even some Pharisees casted out demons. If his work is satanic, he's looking at these people who are saying, your work is satanic. He turns it around on them and says, if my work is satanic, then isn't your work satanic? Because you're you're aiming to do the same thing that I'm doing here. You see how right off the bat how divisive he is, right? This form of argumentation. Like, this is what TV shows are made after, right? Where the guy walks into a courtroom, says one line, and everyone's like, well, I guess we know our verdict. But his final argument basically tells them who he is and what he's up to. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 of the text, it says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Remember the the passage before this, where there was a long quotation from the book of Isaiah, where Jesus was pronounced as the servant of the Lord? This means that all Jesus does is the work of God by the Spirit of God. So he is the Son of God who is doing the work of the Spirit of God. And Matthew places these two things together strategically and perfectly for us to see who Jesus is and even what he's accused of being. He is not being seen as the Messiah, but he is showing himself 
to be the Spirit-empowered Messiah. And what's Jesus up to when he casts out demons by the Spirit of God? Think of it like he's entering Satan's house, where he captures Satan. He binds them up, and he destroys his own weapons. Friend, I wonder if you too often think about salvation, the reality that God has come to save sinners through the person and the work of Jesus. I wonder if you think too often of salvation as being just a get-out-of-jail-free card, and too little you forget about the actual power of God against satanic work in Satan. Jesus saves people who are enslaved to Satan. He, he brings them from Satan's side to God's side. And that's what he is demonstrating again and again in the text. So it is very offensive to place on him the works of the devil when he is saying, at the same time of rescuing people from their sin, I am actually binding Satan himself. A clear picture of Jesus doesn't just have him save people from their sin, but he is putting people or putting sin away, going against evil and binding up Satan and his cohorts. I heard an example or an illustration of this about a year ago, so I'm going to steal it and try to not butcher it. But if you think of playing Capture the Flag, Capture the Flag is awesome, right? I remember playing Capture the Flag both in the day and at night, and it's more exciting at night, except when you run into a barbed wire fence. But either way, the rules of Capture the Flag, there's flags on both sides, there's territory on both sides. You start on separate sides, but then you are trying to rush over, grab a flag, and bring it back to your own home side without getting caught. Now, if you get caught, tagged, tackled, whatever, depending on how, how bright it is outside, when you get caught, you are put in jail, right? But what we see Jesus doing, and I want to be very careful with this, what I, what I don't see Jesus doing is playing capture the flag. It's much more serious than that. So if you walk away and go, that guy just compared Jesus to capture the flag, just forget about the illustration. What Jesus does He goes into enemy territory, and instead of being captured, he actually binds Satan and rescues people for himself. Okay, that's what we see Jesus doing again and again and again. He doesn't just save people, though, boy, we could sing about that, couldn't we? He also binds up evil around them. The Bible tells us that Satan is the god of this world, and he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. But when the gospel goes forth to the nations and to people, these people believe. And it's the light of the gospel that shines into people's hearts, where they are freed from Satan's power. This is the gospel at work. When God's word is taught or proclaimed or or instructed, or when you catechize your own kids, it is a spiritual battle against Satan and evil. Not only are we delighting in the gospel again and again, but we recognize more fervently ever before that we are too joining Christ in attacking evil and putting evil to shame. In verse 30, Jesus concludes his argument. This is why Jesus is so divisive in this first part, that he's established that he's working by the Spirit to advance God's kingdom against Satan's kingdom. Then he says to the Pharisees, almost like pointing the finger at them, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me actually scatters. So the question, or the call of this text, in seeing that Jesus is divisive, is whose side are you on in your own life's work? You're either for Jesus and his kingdom, or you're against him. Jesus is saying that he is doing one thing, and he's calling you to either join him or face the music of being his enemy. The second second way that this passage, the the answer that Jesus has, shows how divisive he is, is the reality that he forgives people. Now, it is a very divisive reality. 
The reality that Jesus forgives people from their sins. Verses 31 and 32 are hotly debated verses in their meaning, their instruction. What is this talking about? This is known as the unpardonable sin. You might even be able to recite it on your own. Now, to be clear, what is the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin, it is the absolute and continual rejection of God's power in Christ given out by the Spirit. It's the the absolute and continual rejection of God's power in Christ given out by the Spirit. It is a hardened heart or is a hardened attitude toward God with an unrelenting opposition to what God does in Christ through His Spirit in leading people to Himself. It is just an outright rejection even with the knowledge of what is happening around them. So look at what Jesus says in verse 31 through 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin... And blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus says that every sin, every blasphemy will be forgiven, even those who spoke against Him, meaning Him the incarnate Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, tax collectors, adulterers, murderers, blasphemers, people like Paul who murdered Christians, people like Peter who denied Jesus three times. Jesus came to save, to forgive them of their sins. The Bible is clear on that. Jesus came to save people from every conceivable sin that they have. Yet, there is something that is unforgivable. And that is the heart's rejection of God's work. There there is a dividing line here where Jesus says the irreverence against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now the context of this passage is critical, the context of these couple of verses. What were the Pharisees doing with Jesus? They saw his works, they heard his claims, they were confronted with evidence that he was the Messiah again and again and again, and the Spirit was shown to be upon him in just the passage before, that Isaiah text talking about how the Spirit is upon him. Jesus shows that though they mentally admit to things happening, their soul, their heart's refusal to believe will not be forgiven. They were unwillingly, they were willingly, wow, you guys just saw a lot of uh, language there. They were willingly denying Jesus. And they know what he was saying was true. Yet they decided against it. Their heart, you could just imagine how hard and callous their hearts were. Acknowledging, yes, you did that miracle. Yes, you're doing amazing things. Yes, everyone is testifying that you're the son of God. And yet, I still hate you. And Jesus says, that won't be forgiven. Their hearts are against him. And in setting their hearts against him, they were, in effect, setting themselves up against the spirit of God. That, that's, that's what it means to curse the spirit. If a person is so dug in that even when they know Jesus is the Son of God, when they know that he's the only Savior, and then they make the willful decision to reject him, what more can be done logically? Not forgiveness. But, again, the point of this part is Jesus is incredibly divisive because he forgives people. Within this, we recognize, within verse 31 and 32, you must recognize that Jesus is, does forgive people. The the power that he has in overcoming their sin and despair 
is remarkable. We see that the first part of the sentence is a remarkable part of the sentence, even though it's often overlooked or gone unnoticed because of the struggle of the second part. The, the academic struggle of the second part oftentimes leaves in the dark the reality that Jesus forgives his people of all of our sin. You will not be forgiven, though, if you are not submissive to Jesus' lordship. He's saying, believe in me. Don't, be reject, don't reject me, and you will be saved. You, you can see how critical and divisive this statement is. He does forgive people of their sins, but if you reject him, how can you be forgiven? The third thing we see in how Jesus is so divisive, we see that Jesus reveals people as good or evil. You're either good or you're evil. We see this in verses 33 through 37. It is divisive to recognize that people are either good or evil. In verses 33 to 37, Jesus goes on to explain that this, the rejection or reception, this reality, you're either rejecting him or receiving him, is all a matter not of your actions, but of your heart. No, no not a matter of your intellect, but a matter of what, your, what has happened to your heart. If your heart is bad, then a person will not and cannot confess with his mouth and believe in his heart that Jesus is Lord. And this is something that you see again and again in the book of Matthew. We went through it in a long portion of period of time in the Sermon on the Mount where he says to do this, and the reality is I can't do that because of my heart. What happens is I don't need better morals. I actually need a heart transplant altogether. And so in verse 34 of our passage, it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Commonly, we do this, whether it's in counseling or, or marriage teaching or something, we have, to, we have to come to terms with the reality that we all, at our root, are not good. Or for some of you who deal with soil and farming of some way, man, it is really good to have good soil. And if you don't have good soil, it doesn't matter how great a seed you have. It is not going to work out. And we need to recognize that in reality, naturally, we all have what is called a broken heart or a needy heart, or in our text case, an evil heart. So there's nothing that we could produce on our own that would be glorious or amazing that then God would look at us and say, you know what? That kid's not so bad. I'll save him after all. The only thing we produce are things that are not good. And so we, we see here the tension in this text of of what Jesus will call his people to do continually is to seek a new heart from Christ. What you, the text says what you say with your mouth and believe in your heart is the first thing that determines whether you are with Jesus or against him. And this is incredibly divisive. This is Jesus being divisive. And the stakes are very high in this war against the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Look again at verses 36 and 37 where it says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. What words Jesus is speaking of here, I think the words that he's talking about here are mentioned at the beginning of the passage. If you say Jesus is the Messiah, if you say he's the Savior, if you say he's the Son of David, what Jesus says, if your proclamation of who he is is who he is, then you'll be justified. If you say Jesus is not doing the work of God by the Spirit of God, then you'll be condemned. This is a, this is a follow-up of the unpardonable sin, where these evil words spoken by the Pharisees actually showed their true character, their true heart. They divulged the true nature 
of their own hearts. And all of this is a matter of the heart. Their wicked words reveal the evil that is within their souls. They were bad trees, if you think of it, according to verse 33. And their words testified to the darkness of their own soul. They were in need of a radical conversion. Their hearts needed a transplant, we would say again. John Flavel, a a late Puritan, says that the heart of man is his worst part before it is regenerated. The heart of a man is his worst part before it is regenerated, but it is the best after. The heart of the man is is the worst part of him before he's regenerated, but the best part afterward because God has made him new. God has made him to be a reflection of his son. I remember uh, when I lived in Virginia for a couple of years, uh, I was in a fraternity at Oklahoma State, and one of the things that if you're in a fraternity at some place, you kind of get to go, like meet, you have a reason to go meet people in other areas, other college towns. I, I could roll up to the Fiji house and say, you know, hey, I'm a graduate brother, I think is what you call themselves. You go to the secret chapter meeting where all the, all the secret things are done. And I'm just like, hey, I'm a pastor in town, and I know that some people come to college with a lot of questions about religion or faith, and I, as a graduate brother, like have to buy you coffee or I have to buy you lunch. That's one of my duties and obligations, right? And I didn't think anything would come of it, you know, because then there's that awkward graduate brother who's like, man, get a hobby, get a wife, what is wrong with you? You know, but so I just walk in there and go, you know, I'd, I'd love to hang out or whatever, because I was like 26 and they're like 22, so I'm like, I'm like kind of cool maybe in their minds, they didn't think so. But one guy came up to me afterwards, he was like, hey, totally agnostic, would love to pick your brain about Christianity. We met again and again and again, constantly, and this guy was brilliant and he had all these awesome questions and at the reality, what it, what it came down to, what we talked about continually, is, is I told him that I was praying that God would change his heart, that God would regenerate his heart, because at our root, we need God to remake us. And he just said again and again, I just don't think I need to. He didn't want to believe. It wasn't going to, I wasn't going to convince him. He needed his heart changed. And until his heart has changed, he won't confess with his mouth. He won't believe in his heart that Jesus is the Lord. And until that happens, there's no forgiveness for him. Friends, one of the calls of this text, we we see the gravity of what it means to be against Christ. And all of us are around people, in a home, in work, in a neighborhood, in random friendships, in friendships from the past. We are around people that God calls us to pray for their regeneration. One of the best ways you can love your neighbor is to pray that God would save them. One of the best ways you could do, one of the best things you could do as a parent, even when they're young, even before they're born, is that pray that God would save them, that God would do a work in their heart to where they would then call out to him and deny him no longer. Jesus is divisive because he reveals people as either good or evil, and there's no other option. Fourthly, we see just how divisive Jesus is where he promises God's sign through his resurrection. Jesus was divisive in, in showcasing and in, in promising that God has a sign from his own regeneration, or his own resurrection on who he is. So while teaching to them, the, the text vividly kind of shifts gears a little bit. There's, there's a little bit of combating going on between these two parties. While teaching, the text vividly shows naysayers wanting more proof that Jesus was who he was. They wanted what they called a sign. Show us a sign that you are who, we, who other people say you are. Now, think about it. What, what all had these people been able to see 
in the days and the months ahead of them. They'd been given so much. They had heard so much. They had been shown so much, and yet they want more. And Jesus rebukes them. He calls them, in verse 39, an evil and an adulterous generation, which is a remarkable thing to call a group of people. Now, this was a bigger deal than just him using sharp words. All right? They weren't asking him a question, and then he responds with, you know, a name, and then they go, wow, that guy's kind of rude. It is a much bigger deal of what was going on. These, these words echo descriptions of the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings from Deuteronomy. So when they are denying Jesus and wanting more uh, attention from him, when they're wanting more signs from them, he actually turns their attention back to Deuteronomy and says, you are as pathetic as the people who are wandering around in the desert. And he rebukes them this way. But then he gives them a little analogy by alluding to a large story in the Old Testament. They wanted a sign, and he gives them an illustration of what will happen to him in the future. They want a sign now, and he basically says, first let me tell you about my future by using a historical account of Jonah. Uh, They would have known this story. And and then he summarizes this big event where, if you don't know the story of Jonah, Jonah is rebelling against God's call on his life, and he's then tossed into the sea, and he's gobbled up by a giant fish and kept there for three nights, and then thrown back up, where he then goes to the place where God called him to go, and he preaches the gospel, and people repent. And even Jonah there doesn't like that these horrible people repented. It's basically the story of Jonah. And we see here in verse 40 of our text that in that way, Jesus says he is actually the fulfillment of that story, well, he will be gobbled up. He will be swallowed up. Jesus says that he'll be swallowed up by the heart of the earth for three days, meaning he will die. He, has he satisfied the request? They want a sign? Well, hold on. In verse 41, he references the Ninevites. In verse 41 of the text, he references the Ninevites as repentant people. They were known as awful to the world. Think of the most awful city you can think of. And then that city is sent a prophet, that he preaches a sermon, and all of them repent. What Jesus is recognizing here is that those awful people are repentant. They were known as awful, but God, in showing his love for Nineveh, he delivered Jonah to them, even though they didn't know how much God loved them, meaning they didn't really know the history of how Jonah got there. He just got there, started preaching, and then they responded. Yet just the message that they heard caused them to repent. They heard from Jonah all that they needed to hear. Repent. Now, this is the context here. Here is Jesus preaching the gospel regularly, continually. He's even upping the ante by performing these miracles. And these guys are going, can you give us a little bit more? And he's saying, hey, the people that you all hate in Nineveh, they didn't have what you have. And they still repented. Listen to me when I'm talking to you. Yet they still wanted a sign. Okay, now in verse 41, Christ says someone greater than Jonah has appeared. This is where he would have gotten their attention. Jonah came. He preached. Nineveh repented. Jesus came. He preached. He was perfect. He performed miracles. On and on and on. He is the very Son of God, and they want another sign? I don't know about him, but I would just want to say, get out of here. You've had your shot. But he goes on. In verse 42, he references the queen of Sheba. Now, I know that some of you are reading this and going, the queen of what? 
the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba. This is another allusion. So Jesus first uses Jonah, and now he's going to use another illustration, the queen of Sheba. This alludes to the events that these people also would have known in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9, where the queen, this, this famous and powerful queen, learned firsthand the extraordinary wisdom from Solomon. She heard that Solomon was so wise that she left her throne and wanted to go learn from him all the wisdom that she could. Where Solomon was so great and known for his knowledge that a queen went to the ends of the earth to hear from him. And that caused her to change. The wisdom that was given from God to Solomon, now to this queen, it caused her heart to change. And what Jesus says that he is not only greater than Jonah, but he is also greater than Solomon. And he's right in front of them. And they want what? Another sign? They have the best sermon ever talking to them. And here's the point. If strangers and hated enemies believed in Yahweh in, in such a way that their lives responded to his good news, how much more should Jesus' listeners and even his opponents accept his message as heaven sent? They should be the quickest repenters ever. What, what Jesus effectively communicates is that he is who he says he is. He knows what he's about. It's not his job to satisfy your demands, but it is your job to satisfy his demands. He is the Lord. But within a stunning revelation, you see how divisive this is, that they want a sign. But he says, you wouldn't believe in me if I even showed you yet again another thing. You can see how stunning this is. How, how, review, how revealing this rebuke on these religious leaders' souls is. It is quite literally an Easter egg, though, according to verse 40. There's this awesome little phrase that could get lost in the weight of his words. He says, you won't believe me anyway, while at the same time giving them a sign, a, a typological clue of exactly who Jesus is. He rebukes them by saying, you're not listening. Other people have listened and they have responded. But within that rebuke, there is this tiny little type of forecasting that he does. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And it wouldn't be much longer chronologically from this passage when Jesus would endure just that, where he would die on account of, of sinners. Jesus gives here a clear picture of his salvific work. In order to save people, he would die, be dead, and then rise three days later. Jesus gives them actually a sign in the middle of showing their heart. He gives them a, a foreshadowing of what will happen. He will die a death on behalf of sinners and rise from that death, conquering the power of sin, and be brought from that death and showcasing where we can be brought from our own. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, the, the dividing line of Christ is held by other writers. The different apostles and different disciples of Jesus are holding this line to be true, where it says, if you are buried with Christ, you'll be raised like Christ. If you're buried with Christ by faith of his saving power, you'll be raised anew because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ. And if you're not buried with Christ, what is being forecasted to you is that you will die without any hope, as if nothing mattered. The call on this, I think, to all of us 
is the tension that these Pharisees would have had, or should have had, in recognizing what Jesus has said about Nineveh, recognizing of what Jesus has said about Sheba, that, that should have sent sparks all over their head of like, oh, okay, I know what he's talking about. I need to repent. Friends, you and I have an even weightier approach to this text because we see Jesus on the other side of the grave. Not only is he the one who carried Israel out of Egypt, not only is he the one who imparted wisdom on the person of Solomon altogether, not only is he the one who attracted the queen of Sheba to himself, not only is he the one who delivered Jonah to Nineveh to where God could reach the ends of the earth, but now we see him as the one who is ruling and reigning and living in his call on all of us of repent and believe in me, I am the one who gives you rest. It ought to have a fuller weight. And you see the insanity of those who reject it still. What more sign can you and I have? Friends, if you're not a Christian, I hope that this text sits with you for the rest of your day, the rest of your week. What Jesus has offered and continues to offer in his gospel is true rest for anyone who is far off. No matter how far off you think you are, And all of us are very far off naturally in our own sin. No matter what you have done and what you have come from, Jesus calls you to come to himself for true rest. But he also does it with a warning. And that's what I hope sits with you. This warning of if you reject the Son of God who is empowered by the Spirit to do the will of the Father, if you reject that, you have no hope in anything. So for the person of faith, the resurrection of Jesus should prove even more adequate than anything that comes before it on the power of God to save sinners. Now, friends, if you're not a believer, what more would convince you? More miracles? More emotion? More prayers? More more lessons from an old book? Look no further than the resurrection of the one who was killed for preaching to you one message. Believe in Christ to save you and turn from your sins to him. That is a divisive message while at the same time being incredibly welcoming. Now, fifth and finally, how divisive is Jesus? He completes our salvation through our relocation. Jesus completes salvation through relocation. See this in verses 43 through 50. I want to move to my final point because I I feel like there's there's a sense, even as I've, I've looked and I've studied, there's a sense that all of this is just negative, right? This is, this is like the, like the first part of 12 was nice, And the second part of 12 is like the hammer, but it's not always the case. Jesus also speaks in the positive here. Being being divisive, Jesus shows his good news too. Being truthful, Jesus shows just how powerful and merciful his news is. Being with Jesus, the text says, must involve doing the will of the Father. Being with Jesus must involve doing the will of the Father. A, A heart that bears good fruit will confess and submit, and submit to Jesus as Lord. And in verses 30, uh, 43 through 45, we see that Jesus resumes the topic of casting out demons. So another episode of demons. You can see how, how, this, how this giant text connects together. We start off with a casting out of demons, and then we conclude with a casting out of demons. His basic point is that the work of God is not done if a person is just freed from a demon. That's not the total redemption of someone. There, there is a space now that needs to be filled with something else. The bad needs to be replaced by the good. And he also tells us what that good is. Look at verses 46 through 50. It's a, that, that good is a perfect relationship. While Jesus is teaching, 
his, we, we see here just in the, in the scene, while Jesus is teaching, his mother and his brothers come to the house where he's been teaching, and they want his attention. You know, they'd be like texting him, hey, we're outside, or calling him like, hey, I want to talk to you. We see that in verse 46. And he uses this occasion to teach others that it's not enough to be delivered from Satan's kingdom. It's not enough to be brought out, but the glory comes from being brought into God's kingdom. We must be subject to God's kingdom. Using the illustration before, it's not just that Jesus came into enemy territory and bound Satan and then freed you up. That's partial good news, but that's not full good news. The completion of that good news is that you were relocated from that place of enemy territory now in the family of God. You see here how Jesus is divisive by saying that he completes salvation through your own relocation. And who are the people who belong to God? They were, ironically, not his family. It's those who do the will of the Father, though, he says. And what the will of the Father is, is it's described in multiple ways through Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. But what the will of God is, as talked about throughout the book of Matthew and throughout the rest of Scripture, it means the will of God is that you would be obedient to God's commands by following Jesus, by placing your hope in him, and by working for the glory of the Father just as he works for the glory of the Father. Those who truly confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord will also live lives that prove that Jesus is the Lord. They have a regenerated heart. They have a mouth that confesses. And they have hands that want to get to work for the glory of God. Those whose hearts have been changed will bear fruit in keeping with their repentance, the scriptures say. They'll observe everything that Jesus has commanded. And so a final call from this, recognizing what Jesus has done, sought you, bought you, and delivered you, At what point now will you continue to obey him in being his disciple? Friends, we must be clear within our own hearts that it is not enough that we quietly confess, but it will be obedient when we continue to proclaim the message of Jesus to others around us. We declare that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we announce that through his death, He has destroyed the one who has power over death, that is, the devil, and has has delivered all of those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, we need to recognize that the call of this text is to recognize who Jesus is and to follow him. And I pray, bit by bit, we will do so and be led to do so. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your scripture. We thank you for the clarity of Scripture about yourself, and we ask that you would encourage us and prod us and draw us to a life of discipleship, recognizing the glory that you have given us in the person and the work of your Son. O Lord, as we approach now your table, we pray that this would be used as a catalyst for us to look up at your glory, look around at your family, and look forward to your return. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, on the night that uh, Jesus was crucified, he ate dinner with his disciples. And as they were eating, he gave them a picture or a very clear sign of the gospel. What Jesus did at the Last Supper, we call it, is he took a piece of bread and he took wine and he divided that bread or he broke that bread and passed it around for people to eat. And then he took a cup of wine 
and he passed it around for people to drink. And he said that they should eat it and drink it as a memorial or as a sign of his body and blood that would soon be given over to them. And we believe that as Christians, we should regularly observe the Lord's Supper because of what it does to our souls. It reminds us, or it proclaims the gospel regularly of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because it was at Jesus' death that he was killed for us. And we remember that through times like this. His blood was shed for us, assuring the salvation that he has accomplished for his own people. Christians are repentant sinners. So if you're here today, you know that you're broken, you know that you're unworthy, but you are in repentance, in and of yourself, recognizing that you need the Lord continually to sustain you, just as he has saved you. This meal is for you to celebrate and enjoy as a delight and a foretaste of his coming love. Paul says that we should examine ourselves. We should approach this table in repentance. We should confess our sins, but then take the elements with confidence, knowing that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, I want to humbly ask you to not partake of this. As people go, and people will go at different times, I just ask that you will stay seated and not partake of the elements. Instead, I want you to use this time to consider the gospel that you have hopefully heard and the claims of Christ that have been given out. For those of you who profess to be believers also, but your life is marked by unrepentant sin, the warnings of 1 Corinthians are especially directed toward you this morning, not just in how we're to receive the supper, we're to receive it in joy, but why we're to receive it, because we know that we have been assured of Christ's forgiveness. I want to encourage you to hear the warnings of Scripture if you are in unrepentant sin and not participate today. Humble yourself before the Lord and repent of your sins, even using this process of not taking uh, of these elements to spur you towards repentance. As well as if you are under formal church discipline at this church or another church, I want to encourage you to take this posture as well. All around us are tables that are filled with two cups stacked on top of each other. The top one is juice. The bottom one is bread. I want to ask you to go to those tables at any time uh, during this, this next moment where music will be playing and then come back to your seats. But use that time to reflect on God's goodness in Christ towards you, once sinner, now saint. If you're unable to stand or you don't want to get around a lot of people, one of the deacons will be coming down the aisle and you just raise your hand and they'll bring you a part of the elements. But let me pray. And then when I'm done praying, you can go at your own will toward the table and then back to our seats where we'll take together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a true sign of your death and your resurrection. Lord, we pray that as we take these elements, you would cause us to be filled with more joy than ever before, recognizing that you one day will come back and take these with us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.